Hello and welcome again to another conservative historian podcast. This one entitled Legislators versus Executives Who Are the Better Presidents? The date, February 2022, and my name is Bell Avis. In a recent Daniel Henniger column in the Wall Street Journal, the author asked the unasked Mansion Adams in 2024. Of course, the real point of the column is to note that, one, both of these men are Democrats, and that, two, we have first-term Democrat in the White House already. The column's just is not just about the titular possibility about Joe Biden and the Vice President Kamala Harris. Quote, how far-fetched is Adams in 24 than reporters writing seriously of late that if Vice President Kamala Harris fades, her replacement on the ticket could be Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg, previously the ho-hum mayor of South Bend, Indiana, whose population, 103,000, is about the size of a New York City neighborhood, unquote. Aside from the near certainty that Joe Biden will become the first incumbent president not to run since Lyndon B. Johnson 54 years ago, this raises a plethora of questions over who should run. To this column, a response written by reader Phil Funk notes, regarding Daniel Henniger's column, Mansion Adams in 2024, I've often thought that moving someone from the legislative branch of government to the top position in the executive branch was a bad idea. Unfortunately, President Biden and his wet finger in the air management style have done nothing but support that view. However, if Mayor Eric Adams, currently mayor of New York City, can accomplish half of what he proposes for New York City, an Adams Mansion ticket has some appeal. This is a logical assumption. However, the day-to-day lives of governors and mayors are different from that of legislators. But the office of the President of the United States is in itself different. It is a unique animal. If we were to assume the pure version of the Constitution crafted by the founders, this assumption would most certainly be the case. But the presidency of 2022, for good or ill, I would say mostly ill, also shapes policy and even legislation itself. That is a is an off-ramp from what the founders had imagined and good constitutional government, in my opinion. But first, we can contend with what success looks like. In my book, The Conservative Historian Selected Works, yes, yes, available on Amazon, blah, 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 I rank the presidents using criteria vastly different than the usual list one sees. So, there are two criteria of this piece. One, whether presidents performed well by any objective measure. And two, whether they performed well in an ideological sense. For example, Barack Obama, who never held an executive-type job unless one counts community activism, akin to being a governor, polls well in terms of liberal approval. There is even talk of his wife running in a future election. Now, from my perspective, he was a failure. I wouldn't say I liked his positions on the economy nor foreign policy, but where he ultimately failed was to move America to a post-racial society. This was his promise back in 2005 with his famous, there is only the United States. But for all of his failures and some of his minor triumphs, would the policies and execution have changed had he been governor of Illinois instead of a one-term senator? Then the experience issue comes up. When John McCain selected Alaska Governor Sarah Palin to be his running mate, 
it was seen as another out-of-the-box thinking move that the, quote, maverick, unquote, was famous for. She had served about one year of office in Alaska, and Alaska is the third smallest state by population. None of that, of course, was a factor for the McCain team, or at least McCain himself. What quickly became a factor was that Palin was simply in over her head. Being mayor of Wassily and governor did not prepare her to speak articulately on national tax policy, immigration, and most certainly not foreign policy. Yet, experience itself is not a direct correlation to success. James Buchanan, one of our most ineffectual presidents, had arguably the best resume. He served in the Army in the War of 1812 and was the only non-officer to ascend to Oval Office. He represented Pennsylvania in the House of Representatives, was minister to Russia, a member of the Senate, minister to Great Britain, and Secretary of State during the Polk administration, serving during the war with Mexico. Rarely has this combination of domestic and foreign affairs knowledge been combined in one single individual. And how did all of this experience play out? Well, writing about the 15th president, George F. Well notes, quote, Why is Buchanan always so near the bottom? How exactly did he screw up? The lists don't usually go into much detail, except for a few vague sentences about how he failed to avert the war. But that passive formulation doesn't get at his spectacular awfulness. Repeatedly, he made terrible decisions and when presented with various options, pursued the most extreme pro-slavery position, even though he came from Pennsylvania. He chose a cabinet dominated by corrupt enslavers who lined their own pockets and stole government assets. When crises came, he had no answers because he didn't think the federal government should intervene. As more people questioned his choices, he angrily dismissed their criticism. These deficits have kept him permanently at or near the bottom of presidential rankings. Andrew Johnson stubbornly refused to work with Congress. Herbert Hoover was overwhelmed by the Depression. Nixon felt that he was above the law. Buchanan shared traits with all of them, a difficult trifecta to recover from, unquote. Now, his successor, on the other hand, uh, a guy by the name of Abraham Lincoln, served precisely one term in Congress, and that was 12 years before assuming the presidency. Joe Biden, on the other hand, has brought 30 years in the Senate and eight years as vice president. And as of this writing, his presidency is flailing by pretty much every single measure, including voices within his own party. Robert Caro is a historian who has devoted much of his 83 years to the pursuit of a single biography, that of Lyndon B. Johnson. Now, I would argue that there is no single figure on the planet of the earth who has ever lived, who is living today or has ever lived, from George Washington to Qin Shi Huangdi to Muhammad, who needs four volumes. Sure, if we live for 200 years and spend 150 of those years doing amazing things, then what, one or two books? But four? I think what happens sometimes is as historians do all of this research, they do all of this work, they've gone through all of these archives, and by golly, all of that work is going to go into their work, and thus, four volumes. Now, we can safely say no one on the planet, though, knows more about LBJ than Caro does. He probably knows Johnson better than Lady Bird ever did. Caro's third book is entitled Master of the Senate, which gives one a sense of Caro's and history sense of Johnson's legislative abilities. Quote, 
He not only had the gift of reading men and women, of seeing into their hearts, he also had the gift of putting himself in their place, of not just seeing what they felt, but of feeling what they felt, almost as if what had happened to them had happened to him too, unquote. And as for legislative accomplishments, Abraham Lincoln may have struck off the, tra- the chains of black Americans, but it was Lyndon Johnson who led them into voting booths, closed democracy's sacred curtain behind them, placed their hands upon the lever, and that gave them the hold on their destiny, made them at last and forever a true part of American political life, regardless about what you are hearing right now from the Biden administration. Johnson was to become the lawmaker for the poor, the downtrodden, and the oppressed. He was to be the bearer of at least a measure of social justice to those whom social justice had so long been denied, the restorer of at least a measure of dignity to those who so desperately needed to be given some dignity, the redeemer of the promises made to them by America. And it was the legislative genius that brought forth the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which I think was a really good thing and the Great Society, which I believe was an absolutely awful, terrible thing. Many historians lump the two together, but I see the Civil Rights Act as the natural culmination of Johnson's efforts in the late 1950s. I know the rest of the legislation, especially the Great Society, as the extension of Johnson's hero, FDR, and his New Deal. Nevertheless, Johnson's experience as a legislator was massive, no denying that Johnson passed the 1964 Civil Rights Act, the 1965 Voting Rights Act, and the 1965 Immigration Act. He created Medicare and Medicaid, Head Start and the Job Corps, the National Endowment for the Arts, and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, seen today in its guise of NPR, and the Departments of Transportation and Housing and Urban Development, Besides much else, amounting to more than a thousand pieces of legislation, his was perhaps the most comprehensive and ambitious effort to change the political, social, and economic landscape of the United States in all of the country's history. Notes historian Randall B. Woods. Writing for the Wall Street Journal, commentator Max Boot notes, quote, Early in his narrative, Mr. Woods makes an oft-neglected point. The first building block of the Great Society was the Great Tax Cut of 1964. This legislation, which cut taxes by $11 billion, the federal budget was around roughly $100 billion, helped boost the economy and increase governmental revenues by $7.5 billion in its first year. It is hard to know who will be more discomfited by realizing that LBJ was a supply cider, his liberal admirers or conservative critics, unquote. In some regards, I, I used to agree with Max Boot. His, his politics seemed to have changed a little bit. I have to disagree with him there. All of those other things, the creation of the transportation department and on and on and on, um, we won't even get into public housing. I would just recommend a really good book on the Great Society by the amazing Amity Schles, and that will give you an, a concept of the promise of the Great Society and its failures. But it wasn't the failure of the Great Society which ended up bringing Johnson down. It was something else. Johnson was one of the very few presidents still in good health to deny to run for president when he was eligible in 1968. Because of the timing of the Kennedy assassination, more than two years into his term, Johnson had only served five years at that point of 1968. And under the 25th Amendment, could have run again. So why did he choose to not run again? 
The short answer was Vietnam. It is one thing to master the details of legislative processes or to know how to strong-arm Senate colleagues or spend massive federal monies. It is quite another way to discern the motivations of figures such as Ho Chi Minh or to prosecute a war in which the objectives and the enemy were ambiguous. Opinions about what Vietnam and Johnson's actions were could fill up several libraries, well, back when books were printed, of course, but what is unmistakable is that his vast legislative experience and success did not serve him in the role of commander-in-chief. Why did in the late 1960s, after the passage of landmark civil rights legislation, it is here that the proponents of executive experience come up? Johnson, with his decades of legislative experience, had never, from an executive perspective, really run anything. So, when looking at presidents, governors are the place to look, right? But again, from an ideological perspective, opinions are mixed. Former two-term California Governor Ronald Reagan is one of the greatest presidents of history. That's my perspective. Progressives would say the same, however, for former governor of New York, Franklin Roosevelt, and it is unquestionable that each, in his own way, knew how to run an administration. Yet Jimmy Carter, one of our more ineffectual presidents, had been governor of Georgia before becoming president. Stephen Hess, writing for the Brookings Institute, noted of Carter, quote, Carter's an outsider who doesn't understand the levers of national governance. Or Carter surrounds himself with a Georgia mafia whose weaknesses are the same as his own. Or Carter is a bad manager who hasn't been able to sort out decisions that a president must make from those that should be settled at lower levels. Or Congress is so uncontrollable that it will not allow any president to exercise the reins of leadership. Or the bureaucracy has grown beyond the span of presidential control or many of the nation's problems are highly intractable or even all of these reasons taken together. What is undeniable, whichever reason you wish to pick, Carter's presidency was seen both at the time, in 1980 when he was beaten by Ronald Reagan, and later as a failure. Now what about the vice presidency? What about serving in that post? Is the vice presidency the right post before succeeding to the presidency? We have already discussed Johnson, who served three years in the role. As with legislators and governors, the record is mixed. Martin Van Buren's term as Jackson's vice president did not help provide solid answers to the panic of 1837. Nor did Adams, serving as the first vice president, prevent him from seeking the odious Alien and Sedition Acts, one of the more wrong-headed pieces of legislation in American history. Likewise, the record is mixed for long-term veeps such as H.W. Bush, or even short-term ones like Gerald Ford. Then, there are very short-termers who served in the vice presidency, so short that it's hard to say whether the office helped or not. Members of this list include John Tyler, Teddy Roosevelt, and Andrew Johnson, one of the worst presidents in American history. Yet, one of the greatest presidents, and arguably the, the most underrated, in my opinion again, was vice president for nearly two years and the governor of Massachusetts to boot. As biography Amity Schley's right, I mentioned her before, of Coolidge, quote, under Coolidge, the federal debt fell. Under Coolidge, the top income tax rate fell by half to 25%. Under Coolidge, the federal budget was always in a surplus. 
It's unheard of today. Under Coolidge, unemployment was 5% and at one point even 3%. Under Coolidge, Americans wired their homes for electricity and bought their first cars or household appliances on credit. Under Coolidge, the economy grew strongly even as the federal government shrank. Under Coolidge, the rates of patent applications and patents granted increased dramatically. Under Coolidge, there was there came no federal anti-lynching law, but somehow lynchings themselves became far, far less frequent than under the previous administrations of Harding and especially those of Wilson. And the Ku Klux Klan membership dropped by millions, unquote. So up and down the line, we have governors, legislators, and VPs who were successful, and some who were not. So if it is not about the experience, whether you were in government long time or a short time like Lincoln, whether you were a legislator, an executive, or a VP, what about temperament? If there are two factors for success, aside from role and experience, it is the personal attributes of temperament and wisdom. I would argue that it's skills over the resume. Now, this is not a universal opinion. Writing for the Christian Science Monitor, Matthew Dickinson notes, quote, It is that they overstate the degree to which temperament and character can help predict presidential effectiveness. This is not to say that a president's temperament has no bearing on a president's performance. However, it is to say that when it comes to explaining why presidents make the choices they do, temperament rarely plays a controlling role. I believe that because presidential choices are so often constrained by factors outside their control, temperament has little bearing on whether presidents succeed or not. I wanted to provide that counterpoint to my comment on temperament. But in a blog post, Dickinson then weds temperament to intellect to determine success. First note that we have a long history of electing and re-electing intellectual lightweights to the highest position in the land. Start with FDR, architect of the New Deal and Supreme Allied Commander during World War II. He certainly lacked the brains to become president. Supreme Court Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes, no intellectual slouch, he famously described FDR as having a second-class intellect but a first-class temperament. And social critic H.L. Mencken, and in all fairness, Mencken really never said many good things about really anybody, but he tabbed him Roosevelt Minor. <laughs> I like that. He's contrasting him with Teddy. Columnist Walter Lippmann called Roosevelt a pleasant man who, without any qualifications for office, would very much like to be president. But of course, these guys were experts, so they knew what they were talking about, of course. What I think Holmes, and by extension Dickinson, misses is the dichotomy of intellect and wisdom. Let me first define intellect. Quote, the faculty of reasoning and understanding objectively, especially about abstract or academic matters. Quote, now contrast this definition with the definition of wisdom. Quote, the soundness of an action or decision about applying experience, knowledge, and good judgment. Unquote. These definitions sound similar, but note the fundamental differences of understanding abstract matters versus good judgment. Intellect can be measured. There is even a test. It can be seen in policy wonkishness and large vocabularies. But having a comprehensive knowledge of Putin's histories, actions, government, and Russian history does not necessarily translate into knowing how to stop him from invading the Crimea 
or, as is of this writing, the Ukraine. As noted, highly experienced presidents or intellectual giants have failed. Now think about this one single area out of 20 priorities a president must consider. Policy choices in this regard would be determined by a president's decision to rally other European nations against this move. So a a good president, an effective one looking to stop Putin, would not necessarily be an expert in Russian history, but would need to have deft diplomatic skills and policies to rally all of those European allies, which without which is not going to be an effective policy against Putin. Part of this is choosing those with deft diplomatic skills. George Schultz, Reagan's Secretary of State, had the goods. John Kerry, Obama's choice, did not. The policy would mean undermining Putin's support by undermining his use of, let's say, oil as a cudgel against his enemies. The real skill is the ability to look around dark corners in knowing the impacts of arming the Ukrainians or even letting the nation into NATO, engaging the impact of that on Putin and his all-important cronies who are the bulwark of his government. Intellectual capacity is helpful in all of these areas, but not the determinant of success. What is the determinant of success is good judgment in knowing what to do and how to do it. And finally, it's that strange, almost weird thing. In hockey, uh, Wayne Gretzky famously said, I don't skate to where the puck is, I skate to where it's going to be. Somehow he knew where the puck was going to be. Effective presidents have an intuitive understanding of where the puck is going, an intuitive understanding of what is going to happen because of their choices. During the recent pandemic crisis, a few critical levers of policy, from mask mandates for children to lockdowns, are now under increasing scrutiny. Thank God, finally. A recent study from Johns Hopkins, not a crank institute that, held that lockdowns had little to no effect in stopping the virus. I'm going to repeat that, little to no effect in stopping the virus. The data on kids and masks is even more problematic and more obvious. There is little evidence of the efficiency of typical cloth masks, and new studies are showing that masks are even detrimental to the health of children, and yet somehow they are still school mask mandates as of this writing, and somehow we have made the problems of the pandemic even worse. The common excuse is, well, this was unprecedented. We did not know what we know now. On the face of it, this is a spurious claim. From the inception of the virus in the spring of 2020, there were precise data that older people over 65 were suffering at a factor several times middle-aged people, and the numbers for children were minimal as far as COVID fatalities and hospitalizations. We had data from the first six months showing that lockdown states like Illinois or California were not materially performing any better than more open states, such as Florida or South Dakota. One of the impressive aspects of George Washington's administration was that everything was the first time. There was no precedence to look to. Never in the history of humanity had a republic been established immediately on a continental scale. About the only comparison, the Roman Republic began to fall apart almost immediately at that point of continental scale. 
Everything from national debt to dealing with Europe was new for Washington and his team. That included John Adams, Thomas Jefferson, Alexander Hamilton, and John Jay. Yes, the pandemic was new. So was the rapid industrialization of the nation, an expeditionary force in World War I, and mass immigration. Presidents are not elected to simply follow a rule book like a referee in an NFL game. They are expected to manage the knowns, but also the unknowns. And the best way to do this is not necessarily to have served in Congress, or maybe even have been a governor, but to have the wisdom to manage the unknown affair. Thank you for listening to this latest Conservative Historian podcast. Listen to all of our podcasts. There's over a hundred of them and they're great. Well, of course I think so, but I'm probably the most biased source of that opinion. Thanks for listening. This is Bell Avis.